Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. One more vote for a just cause. On Monday, January the 15th, the Pacific island nation of Nauru announced its decision to sever so-called diplomatic relations with the Chinese province of Taiwan and pursue the re-establishment of diplomatic ties with the People's Republic of China. Situated some 4,000 kilometers east of Australia, the island nation of 12,000 inhabitants took this move days after elections were held in Taiwan, where the DPP won the leaders' race but lost in the legislative branch. China has expressed appreciation and welcome for Nauru's decision, but the United States called it disappointing, drawing a second round of war of words between the two sides. What prompted Nauru's decision to switch at this particular juncture as disappointed as the U.S. is, can it change the future where global opinion trends and where the arc of history bends? To borrow the words from the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I'm particularly pleased today to be joined from Wellington, New Zealand by Setope Soa Emalilagi, a Samoan lecturer in Samoan language and culture at Beijing Foreign Studies University. He's an expert and columnist on China-South Pacific relations. From Apia, Samoan Moa by Dr. Kashmir Makun from the School of Economics at the University of the South Pacific and from Shanghai by Professor Chen Hong, Executive Director of Asia Pacific Studies Center at East China Normal University. It's great, as I said, to have a South Pacific Islanders perspective on this matter. So the warmest welcome to the three gentlemen. First of all, um, on Facebook, the official statement of Nauru goes like this. The government of the Republic of Nauru today announces that in the best interests of the Republic and the people of Nauru, we will be moving to the One China principle that is in line with the UN Resolution 2758, which recognizes the People's Republic of China, or PRC, as the sole legal government representing the whole of China and seeking resumption of full diplomatic relations with the PRC. Now, the decision came just days after a new Taiwan leader was elected. And uh, let me go to Setope um, Soa Emalilagi first. Do you think countries are literally voting with their feet for the one China principle that China touts? I don't think uh, Pacific nations, and I do represent the Pacific in my views. I think the Nauru case is very enlightening for the people of the Pacific because I have to give you a little bit of historical context as to Nauru first. I think as of yesterday, when Nauru signed the agreement with China, one China policy, and also signatory to the Belt and Road Initiative, Nauru is one of 15 Pacific Island nations. One of 15. Mm -hmm. And of the 15 island nations, 11 have signed with China to recognize the one China policy. Now, it's not rocket science that the people in the Pacific have their own, every nation has, has their own view and has their own understanding of China. And so over the years, since 1922, the first leader of Nauru, Hammer de Joburg, the father of Nauru, had this vision that they must expand internationally. 
So who is the major partner now in the South Pacific? It's China. So 11 of the 15 island nations have signed with China. And so I think it's a very good step. It's a major plan in international diplomacy to see island nations say, okay, yeah, it's time. <laughs> Every island nation has their own individual way of looking at China. But when it comes to economics, diplomacy, international relations, geopolitics, they know that China is a major player and a beneficiary of island culture as well. Mm -hmm. Let me go to uh, Dr. Malkun there for your perspective. Uh, what do you think is the significance behind Nauru's decision joining the other majority countries in the South Pacific in recognizing Beijing as the sole legal government representing the whole of China? And what do you think of the U.S. response calling the decision disappointing? Thanks for having me. I think uh, the move by Nauru to re-establish the diplomatic relations with China is not surprising. In fact, what it demonstrates is that China is becoming a real alternative in the Pacific Island countries. Not only because of the UN resolution, but many Pacific Island countries now begin to realize the growing role of China in the global governance. And as my counterpart from the Samoa has mentioned, as a sovereign nations, Pacific Island countries have sovereign right to choose their diplomatic relations and choose their development partners. But more so, it is important that now Pacific Island countries are actually realizing the development deficit that has been there for centuries, for decades. And uh, given the dynamics that are playing out, uh, we can't be left behind while the world is moving towards prosperity. And as a result, I think Pacific Island countries are making the decision in the best interest of their people and best interest of their country. Uh, looking at the China specifically, the, the balanced stand that China takes in the global governance, the nature of the values, shared perspective that they, that they share with the Pacific, as well with the Pacific Island countries. And then, of course, uh, it produces tangible benefits, which we can talk about later down the line. Yeah. But having said that, this is not a surprising uh, for us at all. In fact, this is uh, some of uh, the things we expect countries in the Pacific to make their own decision. Mm -hmm. And uh, with respect to the uh, U.S. reaction, I think this is the kind of rhetoric we want to avoid in the Pacific. We don't want this kind of geopolitical competition competition that negatively affects. We want to avoid that. Let's talk about competition in development. Let's talk about competition in bringing tangible benefits for the Pacific Islanders. I think that is very important. And Pacific leaders, given the young population, uh, given the changing structure of world order, we are beginning to realize this. Mm -hmm. um, let's take a look at the longer trend over the past eight years. Actually, 10 countries have uh, uh, made this decision, meaning to sever their so-called diplomatic ties with Taiwan since 2016 and uh, restore or establish diplomatic relations with China. Let's take a look at the graphics. For instance, in 2016, it was Xiaotome and Principe, 2017, Panama, 2018, three countries, Dominican Republic, Burkina Faso and 
El Salvador 2019, Solomon Islands and Kiribati 2021, Nicaragua 2023, Honduras and 2024, Nauru. So um, just to give people an idea of the growing trend, as I said, now 182 countries uh, have done exactly the same. So, um, Professor Chen, let me go to you. What do you think have prompted all of these countries in the past eight years to take this path and uh, recognize or re-recognize China as the sole legitimate government representing the whole of the country? Well, I think it is now a prevailing trend. The countries, you know, any country with sanguine and logical, you know, you know sensible understanding and assessment of the uh, international geostrategic developments, all countries have adopted and will naturally adopted the one china policy you know china represents the constructive forces in today's world it carries out diplomatic relations and cooperation with countries around the world based on the principle of mutual respect mutual understanding and mutual benefits the, this principle of mutuality is independent of political and economic self-interest and china has been working with the rest of the world for the uh, international community with a shared future. On the other hand, China is the second largest economy in the world. A healthy, you know, a sound relationship with China is conducive to constructive cooperation with win-win outcomes. That is why I think more countries that are still haven't established a diplomatic relationship with China will ultimately come to the right side of history. Mr. Soa Emali Lagi, let me get your response on the U.S. comments as well, because as I said, the United States called the decision disappointing, but as I said, 122 countries, including the United States, have diplomatic relations with China, and yet the U.S. seems to think that, you know, the other, the remaining 12 countries shouldn't be doing so. What is the logic? How do you look at it? Well, I'm a teacher, lecturer at uh, Beijing Foreign Studies University. I teach Samoan language and South Pacific cultures. I also read what is in the Western media in regards to China. It's a load of nonsense, to be quite honest. Anything that they mention about China is always in the negative. It's really up to us, the students, the people, to read between the lines. Now, if the United States is disappointed, they should be happy. They should be clapping their hands with glee that Nauru is a land of 12,000 people. They need immediate relief because there is no arable land in Nauru. Their main resource was phosphate. They only have perhaps another 30 years. Their land has been totally destroyed because of strip mining. This is not mentioned in the Western media. They don't look at the history and the people. And so I think, you know, what my colleagues have just mentioned, the geopolitics, the understanding of this region, I will say, if you read any Western media report, especially on the South Pacific, go and ask the people, mm -hmm. what do they think? Yeah. Well, and I can tell you, mm. sorry to interrupt, I can tell you that they're very, very happy with the aid. Now the aid is so, so complex. China has world technologies, say for example, in solar power. This is what the island people need. Not a 20 year program down the line. But immediate help. Immediate. Yeah. And so this is, yeah. I don't know 
Let me, yeah, time is very limited. Let me go also back to Dr. Marquin for his take on the kind of opportunities that uh, have risen because we have, for instance, among the 10 countries over the past eight years which have switched to Beijing, two are from the South Pacific, Solomon Islands and Kiribati. What kind of concrete benefits do you think have arisen from their choices since uh, they made that choice together with other regional countries? I think it's very obvious that, you know, uh, the, the benefits that uh, emanates from our diplomatic relation with China um, is, 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 in fact, improving lives of the people. And, uh, in fact, one just have to, you know, see for his or herself, you know, and, and, and can really see. For example, I come from Fiji, and you look at some of the, you know, infrastructure development that has taken place. Uh, you look at some of the, you know, uh, ports, you look at some of the hospitals. These are the real tangible benefits that people would like to see. And I talk to young people, our next generation, and this is what they need. They need more opportunities. And these are the things that open the opportunity for the Pacific Island countries. How do you look I mean, at, how do you look at some people calling this a kind of checkbook diplomacy? They're saying basically, you know, China is luring these countries with money, with, with aid. How do you react to that, Dr. Makun? Absolutely no base for this. Absolutely no base for this. Pacific Island countries need financing. The, the traditional financing architecture is making hard for the Pacific Island countries to access those finance. And, you know, development partners like China, they understand, they seem to understand okay. the real requirement of the Pacific Island countries. We are suffering from climate change, for example. Yet, what the traditional development partners are saying is different. It's not even with what they are doing on the ground. So, um, you know, we're we pretty much, you know, comfortable, pretty much uh, believe that, you know, this kind of diplomatic right. relations with countries we like China will, will help in the long run. Okay, we have to leave it there. Many thanks, uh, Dr. Kashmir Makun, Mr. Setopi Soa Emalilaki, and Professor Chen Hong for sharing with us your precious insights. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, China and the U.S. have been having intense discussions on several sectors, but uh, uh, is that momentum sustainable? Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. While well, some tit-for-tat has been going on over the question of Taiwan between China and the United States, how have relations been going on overall during the past several weeks? Since the beginning of 2024, officials across different sectors, including military, public security, commerce and climate, have been engaging with each other. And China's project to invite 50,000 young American students to China over the next five years seemed to have been set in motion. Do these developments signify a tentatively positive trend? What is the biggest obstacle, though, for going forward? I spoke with Susan Thornton, former Acting Assistant Secretary for East Asia and Pacific Affairs of the U.S. State Department. She is now Senior Fellow at Yale Law School's Paul Tsai China Center. I started by asking her for her perspective on Nauru's decision to sever so-called diplomatic ties with Taiwan right after the latest elections on the island.
Well, I think in each case, the calculation is probably a bit different. Um, but certainly, um, as I mentioned, with China's accruing kind of weight uh, in all aspects, you know, economic, political, diplomatic, etc., there does seem to probably on the part of these countries feel like there's a certain amount of inevitability in terms of this choice. I mean, countries have a mix of interests that they have to consider. A lot of these countries have been longstanding diplomatic partners of Taiwan, but you know, it may be that their interest set is changing or they may see the international uh, environment changing. Um, so I hope that it won't be because of a bidding war that these uh, switches take place, but because of a, a serious consideration of national interests on the part of these countries. Let's come back to the, re the elections on the island. In December last year, you said that uh, the upcoming elections in the island and the upcoming elections in the United States in November will test uh, whether policymakers in Washington and Beijing are able to aptly or um, reasonably handle their relationship in 2024. Now that we are past the first test, yeah. let's say, do you think the two sides, Washington and Beijing, handle this episode reasonably, wisely? Well, I have to say that I was fairly pleasantly uh, surprised by the way that the election result was handled on really on all sides. Um, and I think this is a testament to the careful work that was done at, in the second half of last year, and particularly by our two leaders, President Biden and President Xi Jinping, when they met in San Francisco. I think there was a decision there and a determination there to make sure that we could keep our relations um, more or less stable during the ensuing year, including through this election period in Taiwan. Mm. Uh, you have said that uh, the U.S. is, if I'm wrong, please correct me, and I quote, that the U.S. is now using Taiwan as a cudgel in the deteriorating China-U.S. relations. And this is extremely dangerous for Taiwan, especially, and for China and the U.S. and the rest of the world. Do you still see it that way? And uh, why, if you do? Well, I think there are people in the United States who would like to use Taiwan to push against China and to make China on its defensive, um, put it back on its heels. I think that the recent efforts to sort of uh, make sure that we have greater understanding around this issue between the U.S. administration and officials in Beijing is going to be helpful in trying to sort of temper those voices who are wanting to uh, use Taiwan in that kind of a direction. And I think the Taiwan authorities are also sensitive to this kind of possibility. And I think, uh, you know, we saw the events two years ago uh, with the uh, trip by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan, the sort of uh, crisis atmosphere that that generated and how negative that was on on basically all fronts. And so I think that kind of move is probably going to be tempered a bit more in this current coming year. Well, one of the most thorny issues, as I, uh, as I mentioned, is between the commerce uh, authorities, between the two sides. Um, U.S. Uh, Secretary of Commerce um, Gina Raimondo has said the U.S. is denying the whole country of China, instead of any particular company, the whole country, the access to the most advanced AI chips because of growing threats 
to the U.S. national security. And meanwhile, the U.S. is trying to run faster. Um, and, you know, in one of the exchanges that you mentioned, China's uh, Minister of Commerce actually phoned, uh, that's on January the 11th, just days ago, phoned his uh, U.S. counterpart and lodged uh, grave representations with the U.S. side over the export restrictions and suppression of uh, Chinese businesses. Um, how do you see the severity of differences in this side? Can they just keep calling each other and, you know, lodging rep strong representations and protesting against each other? Do you see any potential ways that this issue can be resolved or at least a framework to resolve such sensitive issues? Well, um, you know, this is going to be a very touchy issue this year uh, because of the political environment in the U.S. around things like trade, things like the competition in the economic space with China. But I do think that um, the commerce level working groups who are talking about export controls, who are talking about trade issues, um, investment issues, will be able to at least um, explain and to maybe delve into what are some of the second and third order negative effects of these moves that people had not anticipated and maybe try to work out some practical kinds of accommodations or workarounds for certain things. I mean, we saw, for example, around the San Francisco meeting, an agreement to lift sanctions on um, the Public Security Bureau uh, forensic lab in exchange for you know, working together on the fentanyl issue. And so I think, you know, when we get together and have talks and really figure out what the issues are, then we can work to somehow resolve a lot of these uh, irritations. I mean, certainly the issues around technology competition are probably not going to go away, but I think they will be, uh, my hope is, as we talk about these issues and learn more about what um, the impacts are that we can try to find ways to tailor or um, narrow kind of the, the targeting and make it more sort of rational or explainable to the other side. Finally, um, it seems to be a warmer uh, period of time or less cold face, let's say, in bilateral ties. And, and people are seeing some lights of hope. We're seeing young people visiting China, right? Young students visiting China. You are at this moment in China as part of a, a exchange program. And but but this has been uh, a very difficult period of time. A lot of people were seriously concerned about the future of bilateral ties between the the biggest two economies in the world. But you never seem to give up, and um, you persevered even despite the very strong political pressure you may have faced in the United States. Why were you able to uh, sustain and and say I'm going to keep calling for engagement with China even despite our differences over the past? Few years? Well, that's a good question. I think um, I'm fairly stubborn. <laughs> and so I think I feel like there is uh, no other option that uh, the right thing to do is for the United States and China to have continued channels of communication and exchanges that uh, neither one of us are going anywhere. We have to coexist and not only coexist, uh, but actually figure out how we're going to co-progress. And uh, I think, you know, in order to do that, you can't do it without uh, understanding where the Chinese side is coming from and without 
talking to counterparts. I mean, a lot of people in the United States who have problems um, with the relationship of, with China don't really know much about China and don't really make an effort to know much about China. And I just think that's irresponsible. So my continued mission has been to try to explain uh, how things really are in China and, and to make sure that we keep lines of communication open so that we're understanding each other at least. But just out of my curiosity, uh, because I'm trying to do exactly the same, what is the single biggest obstacle that you can put your finger on um, for the domestic audience in the United States in doing what you're trying to do? I think it's fear. I think people have become afraid in both countries, frankly, about their own futures, about their own kind of situation in their own country. They uh, have sort of Maybe it's the pandemic, uh, you know, maybe it's the increased sort of competitive, you know, kind of environment in the world, but people have become less confident and more afraid. And I think that in and of itself is is enough to sort of make people look around to see if there's, you know, someone else out there that they can attribute this, this to. And um, I think we just have to get our confidence back. I actually, I mean, I think that China is facing a lot of these same issues um, that we see in, in, in other countries as well. I feel, feel there's a, a real loss of, of kind of confidence in, the, in, in a lot of uh, places in the world and that we need to sort of get back to a positive vision and positive cooperation and working on problems and showing that we can solve them. That will help. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's great. And um, bravo and um, bonk. <laughs> Guhaj, as they would say, good courage. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank very, you much. very much, Susan Thornton. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And that's it for this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin, coming to you from Beijing. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. The strong wind was howling and whistling. He was the first Chinese citizen to graduate from Yale University in the mid-19th century. I was born on the 17th of November. She had prominent features. Three of us were old enough to lend a helping hand. He navigated between two vastly different cultures and moved further to realize his dream and promote understanding between the people of China and the United States. Ye Minxing was a native of Hamyang. I realized no danger. China is really awakening. Come and join us in discovering the incredible journey of Yong Wang in his autobiography, My Life in China and America. Check out the Audible stories on radio.cgtn.com and all major podcast platforms. Just search for the podcast Books and Beyond and find My Life in China and America.